0: You're listening to Supply Chain Radio. My name's Matt Gunn, and I've got Guy Cortan in the other seat today. Hi, Guy. How are you? Matt, how are you doing? Happy New Year. Happy New Year, indeed. And this is a fun and exciting episode. We're here at the Jacob Javits Center in New York City at NRF, the retail's big show. The biggest of the biggest. <laughs> and it is quite a show indeed. And we have a special guest today, John Riley with Sapient Razorfish. Hi, John. Good morning.
1: Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here.
0: Yeah, we're thrilled to have you with us. And we'll see how happy you are after the show. In, yeah, right. uh, yeah indeed, no, no promises where yeah. we're going here, but...
1: Uh, <laughs> It'll be a journey. We'll That's enjoy right. Having, we're yeah. all
0: in this together. So tell us a little bit about your background and, and sort of your role at Sapient Razorfish and okay. your background getting to where you are today.
1: All right. So I'm VP of Commerce at Sapient Razorfish, and I've been in e-commerce since really before we called it e-commerce, about 25 years now founded and sold a couple of companies in the 1990s, one of which to the company that is now Comcast and one to Amazon, where I would oddly end up working another 15 years later. (laughs) uh, And have sort of followed an odd path through startups and Fortune 500s via GoDaddy.com and Prudential and Scholastic, which led me to my current place today. And then before I came to Sapient Razorfish, I was at Amazon where I led UX design and e-commerce for the Kindle division.
0: All right. So a varied background, very close to retail in mm, certain ways, but also very innovative when you think about it. So I understand that you helped with the launch and the scaling up of the Kindle business unit at Amazon,
1: Yeah, Very true. Yeah. So when I started at Amazon, the Kindle was just a black and white e-reader, very successful black and white e- e-reader, but solely for books. And the Kindle Fire, which was Amazon's first foray into the tablet world, was just starting to come online. And Amazon was a distant sixth behind half a dozen Japanese and Chinese tablets and Bezos and Amazon in general had a vision to create a content consumption device that ultimately was the Kindle Fire and it started out at $100, which was absolutely insane at that period of time because the iPad was 500 bucks. Even, you know, really cheap devices were 150 $200. So that was a groundbreaking move. And over the course of the next three years, we took the Kindle from that little, you know, 7-inch tablet that frankly looked kind of like a brick, or we used to jokingly say <laughs> right. West German engineered tablet and take it to the number two tablet manufacturer.
0: That's an amazing journey. And so... Yeah, I mean, you're building a brand in itself within Amazon right here. It doesn't have some other technology partner's name on it. It is purely an Amazon device. Suddenly kind of crossing barriers between being a retailer or being a brand, really, correct, that correct. becomes a household name, really something that a lot of us have in our lives in one way or another. Uh, let's talk about that, that convergence a bit, and what the challenges are, I guess, in, in creating that brand within a retailer, and what it takes to scale up the supply chain Mm -hmm. to be able to meet demand.
1: So in Amazon's case, they had the fortune, the, the benefit of having a relatively large war chest. They're nothing like they are today at $500 billion market cap. But back then, they had a really talented brand group who had a a vision and we're passionate about taking it from a company that sells paper towels and toilet paper to saying, hey, we're a consumer electronics company now too and we have these other devices as well. And The transition of that was just let's take Kindle and break it off from the rest of the Amazon. We're going to put them in a separate building. We're going to move them out of the retail organization and create a Personality for this brand and grow this business from the ground up. The detail page just changes. The way they supply their devices changes because they originally, originally with how they supplied this, they did it. Okay, we're just going to scrimp everything we can and build this together. And okay, here's this device. Amazon didn't own any of its supply chain at that point. They didn't. They had partnerships with Chinese manufacturers and with companies here in the U.S. to actually do the distribution of it. But they had to slowly build it up till they could have end-to-end control of those devices. There was some rumblings that they would buy Texas instruments, for example, to control their their chip production. They ultimately did not do that and just did an investment. But the goal is much like Apple did over the course of the history of the iPad to control that end-to-end piece so they were the boss of that. And for a company to do that from 2011, which is when the Kindle Fire came out to, say, 2015-ish, when they were, became a mature device manufacturer, they did that in three and a half years. That is incredible, even for a company of that size.
2: That's a great point. I, could you Sort of diving a little deeper on that. I mean, obviously, you know, with a massive war chest, the name of the Amazon, three years is still very impressive. What are sort of the top lesson, top two lessons you would take of how you sort of transition to that point where you start really looking at your supply chain from a strategic standpoint and taking control of it to control your product, which is really your brand and your image and all those things for the consumer?
1: Well, you need to have a goal in mind, and I find that a lot of folks who start down these journeys say, okay, this is where we're going, this is what we're going to do for the next six months, and they don't have that final goal in mind. And Amazon's, of course, secret sauce, and a lot of people pontificate this but don't actually do it, is working backwards. And every single project in Amazon starts with the press release. This is what this is going to look like when we send it out the door, even if it's a complete pipe dream. And with that press release, working backwards to have a step-by-step. Okay, so we have a complete product today. What was the step before we had to do that? Well, we had to be able to ship the product to the customer. Okay, how do we do that? Okay, well, we have the product to ship to the customer. How do we get the product? Okay, well, how do we do that? And by mapping that out, step-by-step, piece-by-piece, you give yourself a roadmap that's pretty easy to follow and you can actually check off as you move through the process to make sure that you do it. And that one little step up front will save you so much time on the back end where you get three quarters of the way through the project and you go, oh my gosh, we didn't anticipate X. And then you come to a complete standstill.
2: Right. So to your point, I think what it sounds like is sort of this uh, have the end goal in mind, obviously, right? And work towards it. Because to your point, I think what we're seeing too is this whole merger, right, with manufacturers and retailers becoming, you know, sort of a blurry line between them. The reality is I think they all realize what they want, which is to get more control of their product, get more touch with the customer, but then they lose way, right? right they lose right. their way. And they, they sort of stumble along so they don't have that end goal in mind.
1: Very true. And it's also a really odd time in terms of manufacturer to customer because for so long we had this model of there's a company that builds the stuff, there's the company that gets the stuff from builds it to the middleman, and the middleman sells it to the retailer, and the retailer sells it to the customer. And now we're at the point where manufacturers are starting to say, hey, we want to go direct to customer. You have companies in China that now, thanks to Alibaba, right. can go right to the customer and sell it to the end user, which they never had that ability before. And then even within the channel, you have long-standing retailers who are now competing with their own manufacturers for the same customer. Right? Yeah, right. It's, a, it's a really strange time right now. Well,
0: and they're not in that business necessarily, so they're kind of learning on their feet. When they make Very that true. decision to go right to the customer or vice versa, Very true. manufacture their own devices, what are some common mistakes that you see as, as brands or manufacturers or, or retailers start to cross those lines?
1: Well, in the case of the manufacturer to the customer path, it's the manufacturer doesn't understand the customer. They, they don't have this hundred years of experience of how to deal with customers, the basic things about how do I get the product to the customer? How do I get the product back from the customer if they don't like it? How do I present myself to the customer? Those types of things are something that companies are still struggling with and I was thinking earlier as we were talking, one of the pieces that manufacturers really struggle with is the experience. I mean, how often, I mean, we've probably all in this room bought something from a Chinese manufacturer. How often have we done that and we're like, okay, where's my stuff? I don't know how it's going to get here. And it shows up in a box that looks like it's, frankly, come from the moon. <laughs> and it's got a bunch know? of duct tape on yeah, right, it. Exactly, it together, exactly. different languages. And that's yeah. a terrible experience. But you were adjusting to that. And so I think over time, the manufacturers will get smarter about that. And it'll make it for a better experience. Coming from the other direction, how do the retailers work when they want to be the manufacturer? It's the middle ground there. It's actually, okay, so I can go to... A Chinese manufacturer and say, okay, I want you to build me this widget and I want to sell it to my customers. Great. Okay, fine. How do I get it from China to my customers? What's the lead time of getting it to my customers and making sure that I can't go out and sell it and say, okay, I'm going to have this fantastic widget, but it's going to take six months to get to the actual end user. That doesn't work for anybody.
2: So you made an interesting point about the manufacturer trying to be close to the customer. What do you think will come first? We as consumers will accept receiving that book. Like you said, you know, I, I remember I bought a pair of headphones and it was from a Chinese manufacturer, and you're like, well, it's really cheap, and it right. seemed good, <laughs> and then a couple months later, you're like, well, where is this? And all of you remember, like, wait, I ordered this. It finally shows up. It's got that duct tape all over. The box is kind of bent. You open it up, and lo and behold, it doesn't work properly. So now right. you're like, i got to resend this back, and uh-huh. then you don't know where to send it, and et cetera, et cetera. But so what do you think comes first? We as consumers willing to accept that experience for a lower price, or the manufacturer saying, you know what? That's unacceptable. We're going to up our game and make sure that when Guy orders those headphones, he can track it, the box is more solid, things like that.
1: I think it's probably a little bit of both. It's a frog and water type conversation. And that's where I was saying is we're in an interesting cusp period where consumers have a appetite for inexpensive devices and they're okay with that. You know, that's the success of Wish.com. And, you know, that's a little bit of like a, you buy something from Wish and you forget about it because you pay eight bucks for it and it shows <laughs> right, up three and a half months right, later. Yeah. You have this thing from the post office with from post-China and you're like, right. what the heck is this? And it's like a birthday present. Right. like it's Woo-ay! a surprise. Right. And then you put the headphones on and they speak Chinese and right. you can't figure out how to use <laughs> right, them. Right. So I think that our appetite for that to save a dollar is probably okay right now just because it's fresh. Fresh and new but people grow to expect better experiences and I think that the other companies say in the u.s. raising the bar on experience where you know you take Amazon for example where I, I can get text messages to tell me where my my stuff is. And Alexa's beeping and saying, hey, we shipped your stuff and I didn't even ask her. And so you have that side of it, which is frankly a little bit of a TMI side of things because I don't need to have 16 notifications from Alexa (laughs) to tell me where my stuff is. To the other side of, you know, I order something for $25 and it shows up three months later and I've forgotten all about it. So somewhere in the middle is the sweet spot. And I don't think we've determined what that is yet. And then you have to factor in the expectation of what generationally that's going to shift because you know you take Generation X, we have very rigid expectations of how things should work and we're used to things being very formulated and we get an email and then it shows up via the post and everything's great. You know, Generation Z is sort of a, yeah, whatever, it shows up when it shows up. Right. And as Generation Z and the late millennials start to become more and more of the purchasing power, there'll be 50% here in just a few years. I think that expectation will shift back towards the yeah, it just shows up when it shows up, and I don't care if it looks like, you know, the Unabomber sent me something, <laughs> you know. Just get it to you me. Know, exactly, just get it to right. me, Chief. Yeah.
0: <laughs> so let's shift gears a little bit, and, and you kind of touched on some of these pieces of it, but the various ways that that retailers are now starting to connect with that consumer, to tell that story and maybe, you know, product status or something else, order information, or simply to be able to order in different ways than you would have in the past— ultimately AI, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. talking to a supply chain, talking to a retailer, might not be a human, but having it understand and put context to what it is that you're trying to buy and then help you get it in the best way possible. Where are we right now in that space?
1: So as you and I were chatting before the recording, artificial intelligence, everybody has a different definition of what artificial intelligence is. And I think we all have the ultimate goal that we want artificial intelligence to be the computer from Star Trek. But (laughs) in reality... As we stand right now, Alexa has a fantastic voice, but ultimately she's just a decision tree. She is, you're asking it a question, it's phoning home, it's sending your recording back to the mothership, it's getting three answers, it's picking one and returning that and hoping it's the right one. Ultimately, most of the time it's the right one, to their credit. It works very well. That said, as I made the joke earlier about, you know, artificial intelligence is really just artificial kind of dumbness. It's not really (laughs) that smart yet. Machine learning is probably a better way to put it because it's, still learning from us and we're still teaching it. That said, over the course of the next three to five years, the big four and other companies are going to spend billions of dollars on this technology. It's an arms race right now to make sure that that company comes out on top. And the Amazons of the world, Facebook, Apple, and Google are coming at it from, we need to own voice shopping. Everybody wants Samantha from her. Everybody wants a little widget in their ear that understands them and presumably they could fall in love with. But At the end of the day, today, we don't have that, and it's a little bit of a wild, wild west now, because here we are at NRF, there are thousands of retailers that say, oh, we have the solution, here's a box with a UPC code, this is AI, you buy this, everything will be fine, and at the end of the day, that's not going to work for most companies, because it'll be a tapestry of solutions for them to build together to make it work for them. And companies are swimming in data. They're yeah. producing so much data and don't know what to do with it. And nobody has the right answers. The big guys don't even get it. Because how often have you bought something from Amazon and then four hours later you get an email trying to sell you that exact same right. thing? Amazon's yep. the biggest e-commerce company in the world. They can't get that right.
2: It's a great point you make, John. Let's go a little bit deeper down that AI path. You mentioned the V shopping, and, and maybe not in this podcast, but I have my doubts about it about V shopping because. Maybe for replenishable goods, yes. Mm -hmm. If I need to order more toilet paper, how hard is that to tell? Hey, Alexa, reorder the toilet paper. But if it's for like, hey, I want to buy a new suit or I want to buy a car, whatever, I I still want to look, not even touch it, but at least look at it. But does artificial intelligence for the retailers hold more promise in the back of the supply chain? So so for warehouse management stuff, Mm -hmm. distribution, understanding feature function for new product introduction, things like that. Do you think AI has more of a role there in the near term or are we just going to try to be, you know, V shoppers and pretty soon I'll just say, you know, suit and I'll know exactly what kind of suit I want and boom, it orders it for me.
1: So the latter part of your question is I do think ultimately that will occur, but that's 15 or 20 years out. That's a long time still. What will make that possible is the near term of the back end and using AI to make it smarter, not only of how companies work, but to make it work better with us. Because ultimately we need to teach this fledgling toddler of technology that we have today You know the difference between ball and table. Right. And it doesn't understand that yet. And we need to walk it through and have it learn. And if you think about it of the life cycle of a child, it will grow to the point where eventually it's a teenager and you'll ask it for something and it'll say, actually, you want something else. As all teenagers will argue with right. you about well, everything. Or they want the car thing. keys
2: at that point point. then you're real trouble. Exactly.
1: The tricky part for retailers and brands specifically is exactly what you mentioned about replenishment. So if I'm asking Alexa, for example, or Google Home, but Alexa in this example, Alexa order me paper towels. It's going to choose the paper towels that's best for Amazon, not necessarily best right. paper towels that are best for me. And a great example of this is over the course of the last 24 months, Amazon's controlled one third of the online battery market yes. because we're asking it for batteries. It's using Amazon Basics. So as retailers can get smarter about that and they have an opportunity with private label and you can build that sort of empire as Amazon's starting to do and say, hey, we can not only remove brand from the conversation and stick it to Duracell and Energizer, but we can (laughs) sell our own stuff at the same time and increase our margins.
0: Ultimately, you're owning more of that conversation just entirely. Yep. Okay. So we mentioned where the investment dollars are coming from in AI. It's from big four technology Mm -hmm. companies along with At a show like this, you see any number of startups or long existing vendors that are sort of pivoting into this world doing that. And so we're getting a lot of that sense that it's going to come from the space with technology, that that's going to drive the future. What are retailers or, or brands to do to line themselves up for this future, to be able to be visible, to be... Relevant, I guess, as more people turn to these different ways of searching for a
1: product. So, there's no real silver bullet for all brands and retailers, and we're going to see over the course of the next few years a segmentation start to develop between whether you are a brand or a retailer, the size of what you are, how much money you have to spend. And that's, as I sort of alluded to earlier with my comment about, you know, there's lots of retailers here who have boxes on the shelves and to say, here, this is AI. I sort of, I feel bad for retailers who are medium-sized retailers who are going to come to these shows and buy something that ultimately doesn't work for them. There's going to be a lot of investment dollars, a lot of money changing hands that doesn't necessarily need to change hands yet. So whenever you have a, a technology such as this, I, my advice to brands, especially medium-sized ones, is to wait and watch how it goes. Start to learn what you can about how you use your data and how to get more of your data. But ultimately, let the people with the big pocketbooks forge the path and then you follow along behind. Because nobody's going to come along and say, okay, I have the solution to this between now and 2022. That said, it gives you that time to sort of shore up your defenses and say, okay, this is where we want to go. This is what we want to be. And in the case of brands, that's an even more odd conversation because having the conversation about Alexa and whether or not it's going to say, Alexa, order me a suit, it knows what kind of suit I want necessarily. And there will likely always be a place for brands, but the competition for that place of being the brand and that channel is going to become even greater.
0: All right. Any other thoughts, questions that we want to cover? Yeah, let me ask you this one
2: out-of-the-box question here okay. out of left field. Love it. Project out 20 years. Okay. Three of us in here, we're, we're obviously all consumers as well okay. as talking about retail. What, what does the retail world look like? What is John's view in 20 years of retail? We talked a little bit about voice yep. commerce. What else is there?
1: So let's just set the stage for that. We're talking about 2038 I want my flying car.
2: Yep, flying car. Flying Uber's mm-hmm. coming going to pick you up. Oh,
1: right, right. I'm looking out the window here at the Empire State Building <laughs> in New York City, and I want to see lots of cars flying around like Futurama. What do stores look like? I think there will always be a place for the bespoke retailer where I go and I talk to another human being and we discuss a product. And that expertise will always be needed. However, I do think there will be a lot more of the sort of the Jetsons model of retail where I have a screen in my house and I tell whatever the fancy name for the computer, Rosie, I think was, right? (laughs) That was Jetsons. that was the maid. That was the maid. But the the point being that, you know, I order something and it shows up in a tube and I don't think anything about it. I think that will be that will be commonplace. And then, you know, since we're talking about the future and possibilities that we may not have harnessed yet, you have to stop and consider in 20 years, will we have gotten a firm hand on 3D printing? Will we be manufacturing goods on demand for things like that? And I think the answer to that is yes. Today, 3D printing is really just a hobby for all intents and purposes. But by that point, will we be able to say, okay, here's a pile of seawater, turn this into a product (laughs) that I want?
0: That'd I be wouldn't pretty
1: say cool, that right? I, I'm so, not saying that's a that. so right? yeah. yeah, do you think
2: do you think that's so in twenty thirty eight he said, is that gonna be something where we're gonna go to our local three D manufacturing at the corner store that's gonna do it for us, or we're we gonna have in our homes. You know, I always use the analogy of the fax machine, right? In the past, remember when the faxes came out, well, you'd go down a home home office supply store, whatever, yeah. and you'd use their fax machine because – Heaven forbid you'd have your own fax Precisely. machine. Precisely. Right? They were oh $700, goodness. right? right. Yeah. All of a sudden, boom, we all had our fax machines, and now they're all gone. Yeah. <laughs> so does that is that the same path as 3D printers? Maybe not the all-gone part, but the 3D printers were. hey, it starts out where maybe in 10 years we go down to local Staples and get our Legos printed, right. and then 20 years, no, no, we just can print them at home. Like you said, here's a bucket of sand, pour it in, boom, I get and it. And then
1: you have that. So I think in that particular use case, what will probably occur is it will be a shift of what a 3D printer is, much like you use the fax analogy. We have devices in our pocket. We can make video calls with anyone around the right. world. To be able to visualize that in 1998, we had a crazy. handle on right. that. You know, we watched Star Trek and we can visualize that. But I don't think anybody truly had the idea that we would be able to do that. Yeah. So what we env- envision today in 2018 is the equivalent of that old Nokia brick phone I have in my hand. <laughs> and that's, you know, like, okay, this thing's going to be awesome in 2038 when we actually get it hammered down. I think probably to the specifics of what you're discussing, we seem to be moving rapidly to another urban-style revolution. You know, looking out over the windows here, I see all of these new apartment buildings here in New York. The millennial generation and and Generation Z seems to have the same feeling of not as much interest in cars, not as much interest in homes. They're willing to live in buildings, so perhaps the building itself has that technology.
2: Cool. That would be very Very cool. cool. yeah. So I could actually just go downstairs in the lobby and print something out? Yeah,
1: exactly. Well, you order it, and, you know, in sort of the conspiracy theorist side of me, I wonder if, and I don't know this from, I didn't work in this division at Amazon, but I wonder if that's what Amazon's thinking with the lockers. Because you consider Amazon lockers mm-hmm. being put into places like yeah. 7 and so forth. Is that the first foray of creating real estate where, you know, I need a window crank for a 78 Mazda and they can just print it for me and I can go pick it up? Maybe. I don't
2: think that's too far because I think, you know, I just read the other day, Amazon finally got their patent, I think, for mobile 3D printing so why wouldn't they put a, a 3D printer next to the locker? And correct, you know, John needs a crank for his Mazda, and Matt needs a new sole for his New Balance running shoes, and yeah. boom, I print them all out them in the locker and you pick right them there.
1: up. Mm-hmm. And Amazon's—they're looking towards that. They, of course, also have the now a patent on printing clothes themselves. Yes. And ultimately, when Amazon came out with the camera for Alexa, that was my first thought of rather than it being a somewhat social aspect of oh look here's the shared of my outfits, it gives Alexa eyes. Because when I order something to be printed, the camera knows that the couch behind me hasn't changed sizes, but I have. Right. So when I say I'm a forty-eight, Proportion, right, right, they says I'm a forty-eight short, and they're like, "Yeah, yeah sure know you are, buddy." Yeah. <laughs> and they send me a fifty-two short, and I'm not going to return it. Right, and, yeah. you know, and it fits you save. perfectly,
0: and you're like, "Wow!"
1: And that's going to save Amazon a lot of Scary, money isn't around around
0: everything becomes so much more personal all throughout the supply yeah. chain at and this that's point. what people yeah.
1: want everybody you know we talked about personalization briefly earlier of people have a combination of they want retailers to know what they want, so they have to spend less right. time actually doing it. And coming, I sound like a broken record, but this is something I'm pretty passionate about. Coming back to the generational shift, younger people are more willing to trade personal information to for retailers for absolutely. convenience. Mm-hmm. And so as time goes on, retailers will be swimming in even more data and have more and more information about their customers that their customers will then expect to use to create awesome stuff for them.
2: Well, I can't wait for uh, living my condo. I have my 3D printer and lockers in my, right? in my yeah. lobby. It's going to be ahead. awesome be yeah, awesome.
1: Exactly. Everything my, tailored to last me. I does. need more stuff in my closet, <laughs> but it's going to be great. Well, you know, maybe you'll have some sort of virtual storage or That's something. That's true, too. where right. we right,
0: can right. close the loop and, and get really good at recycling. Yes, recycle the right. old stuff there to turn it new stuff. Uh-huh. So, uh-huh. All right, folks. Thank you, John Riley, for joining us here on Most Supply awesome. Chain Radio, live from the NRF Podcast Studio. It's been a pleasure having you on the well, show. Thank you
1: so much. It was a pleasure to be here. All right.
0: You've been listening to Supply Chain Radio. This is Matt Gunn. Find us on iTunes or your favorite podcast network.